Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Telling someone for the first time that I have a twin, and people get so excited. Like, they love to hear that. They're like, oh, my God. Like, well, what's it like? And I always kind of have to preface it by being like, oh, well, you know, it's actually, like, pretty dark. (laughs) This is Death, Sex, and Money. Brothers got a hug. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Mr. You had better shape up or you will miss your sister's wedding. Promise? And need to talk about more. In a nutshell, I hate my brother. I'm Anna Sale. I was born three months premature, and I have a twin sister who's a quadriplegic. This is Alex Sugarman. She sent us a voice memo about her sister Katie, who has cerebral palsy. She's wheelchair-bound. She can't feed herself. She is pretty highly intellectually functioning. And... Every time I reach sort of another milestone in my adult life, it feels like something that she can't ever get to. Alex was responding to our call for stories about siblings and how your relationships have changed as you've grown up. I asked Alex to come to our studio to talk with me more about her relationship with her twin sister. God, it's been really hard. Alex and her twin sister Katie grew up outside New York City. Their lives were very different from the start. All throughout growing up, it was very clear that we had, like, separate lives. Like, we never, we didn't go to, like, the same class with the same teacher and the same outfits and, you know, do, like, little kid twin things. Even though Alex was born premature, like her sister, she doesn't have any physical disabilities. Guilt isn't, it's the thing everyone wants to think that this situation immediately produces. Like, oh, well, you get to not be in a wheelchair and you have to look at someone that is, like... Don't you feel guilty? And it's actually really frustrating because, of course, I feel guilty. But guess what? I feel, like, pretty angry, too. That anger has led to resentment on both sides of their relationship. When something good happens in Alex's life, like when she recently fell in love, it can be hard to talk about with her sister. She says more often, it seems like her twin likes to hear about what's not going well in her life. Like, I just got my wisdom teeth out. Then, like, my sort of perception of, of her in that moment was that she was like, oh, yeah, like, it sucks, like, all four of them. If you have a sibling, you know the way these jabs can land. There's a sting to them that's particular because they know you so well. They've known you so long. These are people you can feel more connected to and more exasperated by than anyone else. This is what I heard in the more than 200 stories you sent in about your siblings. We had what I considered the best relationship a sibling could have. Fast forward to the present, my siblings and I are barely speaking. For whatever reason, I find it harder and harder to get them to say anything towards me. He would tell a stranger to check out more than he would tell me. And I'm not really sure why he suddenly looked at me with such disdain. It's a tough thing because, man, we were so close. I know Dad wants us to have a relationship. But, you know, she's turned her back on on us. That's where we are now. We're severed. Well, almost. Almost. 
almost severed. That's the thing about siblings. They are a part of your makeup. You shared your childhoods and have a family history that binds you, even if that family history has driven you apart. My dad uh, and my mom separated when I was about 10, uh, and we had a, I had a sporadic relationship with my father for about seven or eight years after that, but I haven't spoken to him at all in uh, three years today, actually. What's your relationship like with your brother? Hard. We were really close as children, and then when my dad left, Jake blamed my mom and I. I think because we were there and my dad wasn't. So we, he kind of treated us like we pushed him away. Uh, so when I left for college, my brother and I didn't talk for a very long time. This is Hannah. She lives in Flagstaff, Arizona. And since she graduated college, she's been living with her mom and brother after they lost their home in the foreclosure crisis. About a year after they all moved in together, her brother was diagnosed with stage four melanoma. He was 20 years old. Hannah was 23. He makes jokes about it. That's one of his coping mechanisms. Uh, But for about the first year, he didn't really want to talk about it. I think it was part denial, part anger. Her brother Jake's been in and out of treatment for two years now. And then last winter, he developed a massive infection that landed him in the emergency room. They looked at my mom and I and they said, we need to know if he has a DNR. And we said, he's never talked about it. He he kind of won't. And they were like, well, then you need to make the decision because when he codes, we need to know what to do. And I just stood there and went, what do you mean when? Not if, when. And so we're standing in the ER looking at how sick my brother is and they want us to make these decisions about his life that he's never talked to us about. And they kind of said, we don't think he's going to make it to the ICU. And then we get to the ICU and everybody has this look on their face that you're like, they don't think he's going to make it through the night. And then he made it through the night and then they're like, well, we don't, we don't know. It doesn't look good. And he just kept getting better. So even though he looks, he looks fine now, I look at him and I still see how sick he was in the ER and how scared and certain everyone was that he was going to die there. Have you talked to him about things like a do not resuscitate order since? Yes. Uh, so he, after he made it out of the ICU, he was transferred to a normal hospital room where they were like, you need to have a power, a medical power of attorney. Um, they were like, okay, so you want to name your mom as your medical power of attorney? And they wrote it down on the paper. And then he went, no, I need to, I want to name my sister and my mom be the second. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and we asked him why, and he goes, I don't, I don't think mom could make that decision. I don't want to put that on her. So it's on me. Hannah, you're his big sister. Yeah. He has such faith in you. I never expected that. Hannah emailed us an update last week. She told us that her brother has started a new treatment plan and is responding well. 
We are a bit in shock that he is so well recovered, she said. I think this is what they refer to as cautiously optimistic. It took me by surprise, and it was something I didn't ask for, but I just kind of fit into the role. When our relationships with our siblings suddenly change, it can really throw us for a loop. Dane sent in this voice memo from Ohio about his big brother. He'd get on the roof and he would shoot a paintball gun at me as I got off the school bus. And it, it kind of stayed that way until I hit sophomore year in high school, gained weight, and could kind of wrestle and defend myself. But um, when, when we got older, I went off to college. He started going in and out of jail. And it just became kind of a reversal in the sense that I was a, a brother or an older person that he would look up to or he would go to for help. So it always felt strange to start helping someone when I grew up not liking them, not wanting to be around them. But a lot of the time, with your brothers and sisters, you have clear roles that are easy to get boxed into. Hannah Richardson is the youngest of five. Her next oldest sibling is seven years older. Growing up, I would always get the most Christmas presents. And still to this day, being a 25-year-old adult, my parents still will do that for me. Hannah's older sisters and brother are close in age, which has also made her feel very separate from the rest of them. I was really close with all of them kind of individually, but I think the four of them together are closer than I am with the group, if that makes sense. Yeah, so totally. I totally I, understand that. Yeah, yeah, I have really strong individual connections with everybody, but I still find it hard sometimes to really mesh with the whole group. I get this because I come from a family of five daughters. I can hear Catherine and I can hear Anna. We range in age from 31 to 46. Hi, Al. Hi, sister. And we don't often all talk on the phone together. Hello. (laughs) We've been all four times, though. I know. That's incredible. I know. We usually communicate by group text and email. I called Mary on Monday, and she actually answered the phone. I almost almost drove the car off the road. (laughs) Mary's the one who gets the extra Christmas gifts in my family. She's the youngest. I'm in the middle, the fourth of five. Do you think that I'm like a middle child? Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. In every way. Wait, why? Well, I think you've always sort of been, like, self-sufficient. You sort of just figured it out. You know what I mean? I think you, like, learn from the mistakes of your your elders. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. Um, And you know this. Like, there's, like, things about middle children. They, like, seek attention because people forget about them. What do you do? Say that again, Ellen. I think you seek attention because people forget about middle children. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Siblings. Brutally honest. When there's just two kids in your family, all those sibling dynamics can be more concentrated. Uh, as most younger siblings, I probably, I, I wanted to be her and stole all of her music. This is Paul, and that's not his real name. He wrote in from Philadelphia about his older sister. I think I just listened to whatever she was listening to. So at the time, it was probably uh, R.E.M., Pearl Jam. So she made yeah. you cool. She made me cool. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I definitely, I I really looked up to her when I was younger. Paul and his big sister were fairly close as kids and got even closer through college. But later in her 20s, his sister started pulling away from the family. She was becoming very uh, 
paranoid. She thought people were monitoring her or doing different things around her life or, or affecting her negatively. And, and, and uh, we think it's bipolar disorder, um, but she's never had it fully checked out. So it's hard for us to say. Hmm. You know, we kind of change roles where I became kind of the older sibling because I was graduated and, or I had graduated and I had a job and, um, you know, definitely from the surface, it definitely looked like I had my life together. But so she, yeah, those roles kind of switched. And actually I'd say in the last couple of years, that's, that's been the narrative. So that's one of the reasons why it's been really hard for us to connect is because even when she's in a good mood, um, it's me off, uh, having a successful life. And, uh, when she feels in an aggressive mood, she'll, she'll say very hurtful things about, you know, uh, isn't it nice that I've made my parents so proud and, and, and yeah, I've gone off and I'm doing such wonderful things. How much are you in touch now? Not at all. So right now, um, she's, we believe somewhere in LA. You're not sure where? No. And we're not sure, um, whether she's, you know, has a roof over her head. We're not sure whether, um, she's working anywhere. Do you know if she's safe? No. My parents, I think, struggle with it a lot more than I do. I know they struggle with it a lot more than I do. Um, I think because, um, my sister and my relationship kind of slowly dissolved over time. Um, it's a little bit easier for me to understand. And because my parents were dealing with, with it on a firsthand basis, on a day-to-day basis, and, and saw her at her worst, it's a lot harder for them. And obviously, there's a very different um, set of obligations or, or feelings of obligations as a parent. It sounds like you've, you've been more able to be angry with your sister than your parents. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I think I... And I think part of that is being angry for them because, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if you look at the vast majority of people in the world, we hit the lottery, (laughs) you know, so we had parents who loved us and who were there for us. And now they have, you know, they're retired and they should be off enjoying themselves. And instead they're struggling and worrying every night. You also said in your voice memo, you said... Right now, not being in touch, that it's like she's dead. And in some ways, it would be easier if she was dead. (laughs) Yeah, it was very hard for me to write, but um, this is going to sound so terrible. Um, Death is so finite, I guess. Um, It's known. But, you know, but I feel like, you know, death you can deal with. You can't deal with the unknown. And you can live in hope, but living in hope is tiring. After we spoke, Paul emailed to say our conversation had been on his mind constantly. He wrote, The comment that's been bugging me the most is what I said regarding death. I don't know how that comment was received, but I love my sister deeply, and there's nothing I would love more than to have her happy, healthy, and safe.
Hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. So, my oldest brother is probably my most complicated relationship. I always thought I had a really good relationship with my sister. And as the oldest, he really kind of wanted nothing to do with the rest of us. He was honestly kind of a dick. I went off to college and basically left her dealing with a lot. When I got to college, he realized that I was gay as well and reached out to me. There was later points in life when I needed her and she spent a lot of time judging me. His big dream was like, take me out drinking and take me to gay bars. And we did that and, you know, got super drunk and sang show tunes. We just had a really bad fight tonight and we're just at the part of trying to make up. And so now when we get together, you know, we drink and we we all imitate Elaine Stritch from company and, and it's a really good time. And then there are days when you look at this person and go, man, if you weren't related to me, would I be choosing you as my friend? Coming up, more of your stories about brothers and sisters, including when taking care of yourself means letting go of them. It's not the ideal solution, (laughs) but it worked. It protected me. This is a show about siblings, but we also heard from many of you who don't have any. That's becoming more common. The number of American families with one child has ticked up by more than 10% since 1976. Today, about a quarter of families with children have only one. And the feelings that only children have about their lack of siblings are complicated. Being an only child is 100% different than having siblings. I did not struggle with being an only child growing up. I never appreciated the pity that I received as an only child. A lot of my friends who had brothers or sisters like hated their guts. People talk a lot about only children being very, like, stuck up. I really just enjoy being solitary. Privileged. Uh, I didn't learn about sharing. And snooty. I really like to be the center of attention. My issue these days with being an only child is that I have to be perfect. I dream of calling a sibling after a fight to be like, oh, this is what mom's doing. You know, I have no one to look to and say, did that really fucking happen? I don't have an, like a collective memory of my parents. It's just me. Like knowing that one day my parents are gonna get very old and die, um, and then there won't be anyone else. And it's really hard. So there's a sense of loss, of missing out, that gets more acute as you and your parents age. But we also heard from only children about how your independence and self-sufficiency can help you get through the loss of a parent. Sabrina's 44 and the only daughter of a single mother. Her mom died earlier this spring. I think she was worried about how I would be after the fact and, and what would happen. What would you tell her when you had those conversations? I would tell her that she raised an independent kid. <laughs> she raised someone who, you know, can take care of herself. Going through all these stories has been such a privilege. Thank you for sending them in. You've also been sending in requests for the death, sex, and money guest you want to hear an update on. Hi, this is Natalie from Chicago. I'd like an update on Caleb Wilde, the young funeral director that you interviewed last fall. I guess I always assumed that funeral directors could kind of keep themselves distant from their job and... um, 
I was surprised to hear that they burn out. So I'm just wondering how he's doing and if he's even in the business anymore. I would love it if you would talk to Caleb again. On the next episode, I check in with sixth generation funeral director Caleb Wilde and find out what's changed both in his business and in his personal life since we spoke. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. This is Anna. Can you hear me? Oh, oh, hi. (laughs) You totally sound like sisters. Yeah, Yeah, I know, right? I was like, they're going to have a hard time determining who's who. Sisters Jessica and Betsy Herzig-Konesny live in two different time zones. Jessica lives outside Detroit. Betsy lives in San Francisco. And when Jessica wrote us about her sister, she described her as her soulmate. But it wasn't always that way. I talk to them both on their cell phones, which is how they talk to each other every single day. I don't really think we got really close until later when we would call each other on our commutes. We were just both in the car, wasn't it, Betsy? Yeah. And we and neither yeah. of us had romantic partners at the time. And I don't even know where the where if you came up with this, Jess, but we were talking about last calls of the day. Like oh, yeah. um because most people who are in romantic partnerships um, have someone to talk to at the end of the day where they just kind of download everything. And <laughs> we we just have never really had that. Um, I think so we just started as kind of a joke, like, oh, yeah, this is going to be our last call of the day. So that <laughs> yeah. somebody knows what my day was like. Like, I can talk yeah. to somebody. Betsy and Jessica are both single and in their 30s. And they're already talking about living together in their old age. On the Golden Girls' Grey Garden spectrum, Jessica said, we're hoping for Dorothy and Rose, of course. They also told me they're not too worried about losing their bond if one of them pairs off before then. She'd make an amazing mother. I want to be a good aunt. So I, I don't think we really fear it. But it can be harder to stay close when your siblings partner up, have kids of their own, or when you decide to build a life that looks very different than the way you grew up with your siblings. A listener named Mike wrote in about how getting sober changed his relationships with his siblings. He grew up in a big family, one of six kids in Bismarck, North Dakota. He was especially close with one brother, well into adulthood. He and I really were, were good drinking buddies, really terrific drink buddies. And we would compare... I remember, we used to be on the phone with each other, uh, telling each other how we hid our booze from our wives, you know, where we put it. Then, when he was 50, Mike stopped drinking. His relationship to all his siblings became more distant. He noticed when they all gathered back in North Dakota for his father's funeral. I, I would watch them 
later in the afternoon when everyone started having their uh, a beer or wine, I would kind of, uh, I remember going into the other room and thinking, wow, okay, I used to be part of that. You know what it is? It's kind of like being, you know, everyone has their place in family. Yeah. When they were younger. And they were all kind of fitting in. And I don't think I wanted to fit in during that. That was six years ago. And he says that distance has stayed. And when we talked, Mike wasn't sure how much it's him that's pulled away or if his siblings did. But he knows he wishes he still had those phone conversations with his brother. I don't talk to him like I did. Um, There's a a wall there. I, I miss him. Getting sober changed the way Mike fit into his family. For Consuelo, it was getting a degree. She wrote in from Texas. Her mother had her when she was a teenager, and then 10 years later had three more kids. Consuelo took care of her siblings a lot while she was growing up. I remember um, there were times when it was uh, a dance, and I wanted to go, and my mom wasn't home, and and sitting by the window when it was dark outside and hoping that the next headlight that comes home will be the headlight that says, I can go to the dance. How old were you when you left the house? I was 18 years old, and uh, I counted down the days. And um, it was hard. I remember being at the bus stop and saying goodbye to my little brothers and my sister but I, I had to say goodbye because I wanted, I wanted a life. I wanted a life that was bigger than, you know, than being a caretaker. Consuelo is 41 now and the only one of her siblings to graduate college. She's working on her second master's degree. She served in the Air Force and the Reserves and is a single parent to twin 16-year-olds. My children will tell you any day of the week. My mom makes us wake up at 10 a.m. because she says homelessness and joblessness runs in our family. For 15 years, while she was working and going to school, she only visited her family in Texas a handful of times, maybe five. And that was my way of clamoring for a life that was different than what my brothers and my sister and I were exposed to. When you're with your family now, is the, do you feel like there's a mix of them being proud of you and also feeling rejected by you? Yes. And I'm not quite sure that's that's unwarranted. It's not that I want to intentionally reject my family. I think I just reject the pain that sometimes comes with being a part of this family. And the byproduct of that is my family feeling rejected. Does anyone ask you for money? Not not now, no. And, and part of the reason is that at some point, I I became really good with no. When did you learn how to do that? It was an unfolding. Um, it was giving money that I didn't really have to give. 
Um, it was realizing that I, as a single parent of two, that is where my priority lies. And I don't have to explain that to anyone. But those hard boundaries are beginning to relax. Consuelo and her siblings have started spending holidays together again. And when we talked, she just heard from her little brother, who was homeless after a stint in jail. I have to return a phone call to my brother and make a decision of whether or not I'm going to extend my home to him for him to live in. So, Which way are you leaning? I'm still leaning. I feel like um, he really has nowhere to go. And that this is one of those times where no's not the appropriate answer. I think love has to win this time. Repairing a relationship with a sibling isn't always the right thing to do. This is Megan, that's not her real name, who talked with me about her older brother. My brother was always mean. He was not a nice brother um, in a lot of different ways. Um, He was physically abusive and verbally abusive, and he would just try to torture me. (laughs) There was one day after school when I was stuck there in the apartment with him, and I was trying to defend myself against him with a broom. And he took the broom out of my hands and broke it in half and laughed hysterically at me. And that's when I just decided... Something clicked in my head, and I just decided he does not exist. He's not even there. And I proceeded to behave that way for the next 30 years, basically. You laughed when you said 30 years. but So you're you're an 11-year-old girl. How old was he? Um, He would have been 16. Were you afraid of him? I was. At that point, I was, because he was a big guy and when I was trying to defend myself and it was so ridiculous that he was laughing at me I've just I I don't think any time in my life I've ever met felt more powerless than that Um, and the only thing I could do was this solution that my little kid brain came up with that oh he's not there and it worked it worked how did it work when when he would try to irritate me and get no response, he gave up. So when you, so you're living in the same household. Hmm. Like, would you have family dinners? Like, be at a table together? Sometimes, and I would not speak to him, and nobody said anything. How long did your brother try to get your attention? Oh, I think he gave up pretty quickly um, and was basically like, well, you know, screw you, you don't exist either. Although I do remember that year when I was 11, um, there was a cat, there was a stray cat that I used to feed leftovers out of the refrigerator. My mother would never let me have a cat. And this was my favorite thing in the world, this little cat that would come by and... um, My brother told me that he killed it, and I think that was his last effort to try and really irritate me, and the cat never came back, so I have no way of knowing if that's true, Um, 
but that kind of cemented my decision that he just wasn't there. Have there been moments in your adult life when you've thought about communicating with them? I don't want to. I mean, I do see him, I would say like during the holidays every other year or so, he makes it to a family gathering. And uh, <laughs> my mother will say, look, your sister's here. And you'll mm, grunt. And, um, and I'll say hi. And that's absolutely it. And the difficult thing about the whole situation now is I don't know how long, uh, how much time he has left on this earth because of the way he lives. It's not a healthy lifestyle. And I don't think he's a good person. I don't want to know him. I don't want to talk to him. (laughs) But I would like him to feel a little bit off the hook for whatever he's done in his life, not just to me. And I don't know what else he's done in life. Uh, I know he's done illegal things. I know he's been abusive to other people. He may have molested other kids. I don't know. Was he ever sexually abusive towards you? Yes. When I was younger. I think around seven, eight. For a short period of time, yeah. And when did you start talking out loud about what had happened with your brother? Well, I mean, it's uh, only in intimate relationships have I ever talked about it. And a few years ago, I I had a few years of therapy and talked about it. But this is actually very strange, talking to someone I don't know about it. Um, And it actually feels really scary. But, you know... I once heard the phrase, we're only as sick as our secrets. And that resonated so much with me. It makes me want to just tell all the secrets I've ever known. <laughs> you know, because my family was so secretive. Everything was a secret. And um, there's a part of me that kind of wants to let him know that I, I don't hold anything against him. I I just would like him to know that he's, I think of him as a human being. I don't think of him as a monster. And I think some of his life choices reflect uh, an eternal sense of being a monster. But I wish there were a way to communicate that. To communicate that without having... A relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I just would like him to know that he's... I, in a way, I, I forgive him. Even when you cut off all ties with your siblings, 
there's still something lingering. Okay. Bonds you together. And what were you going to say, Ellen? I was thinking about how, like, I think... Like, no other relationship in our lives. Your siblings have so much, like, sensory detail about who you actually are that they know just from having lived with you or, like, known you your life that, like, you guys know exactly what, like, you know, it smelled like... At, at, you know, grandma's house. Like, you guys right. know what it sounds mm-hmm. like when dad talks to all of us. Like, we know, like, these just visceral um, senses that you, you can never really narrate to, like, your partner or to your friends mm-hmm. in the same way. And in adulthood, really, it can be really so hard to update these relationships that were forged so long ago because you were children together. So it can be hard to act like adults together. But some things did shift while we were in the course of making this episode. Consuelo sent us an update about her younger brother, the one who spent some time in jail. He has since moved all his stuff into her guest room. He's staying with another sister now, but Consuelo wrote he knows he will always have a place to stay. And Mike wrote in to report that after our conversation about sobriety and his brothers, he'd reached out to his brother, the former drinking buddy, He wrote, we had a great talk yesterday, one of the best in years. I think because of the interview, I realized just how isolated we all had become. And that was not okay with me. But there are some things that can't be changed. Kato? Yeah? After I interviewed Alex Sugarman, I kept wondering about Katie, her twin sister with cerebral palsy. Okay, we have Anna on the line. Hello. Hi, Katie. Alex connected us by Skype, the way they keep in touch. They talk about once or twice a week, though Katie says it's never really easy. We've never really been close. I think we both have had resentment in regard to my disability, but as we've gotten older, it's gotten easier to deal with. Why do you think it's gotten easier? Because I realize it's not our fault that I'm in the wheelchair. But, yeah, it's still hard to look at what my life could have been like if I could walk. Yeah. I want her to be happy, but there's also a a component of how could you because I can't so what do you be happy like throwing it in my face but I know she doesn't mean to as of late I've been trying to um figure out other ways to to, uh, deal with this situation has that been helpful? um sort of sort of do you two talk about this a lot? Um, not really, because it's a really hard topic for both of us to talk about, so... Like, how often would you say that we talk about it, Katie? Whenever we're angry at each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Sure. I mean, I would say, wouldn't you say we kind of get to the heart of things probably every month or so? Yeah. 
Is there anything that you feel really um, feel like you've learned from your sister, Katie? To try to like be more open, but do I do the things I've learned from her? Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that, Kato. Alex Sugarman and her twin sister, Katie Sugarman. Thank you to all of you who sent in stories about your siblings and families. This is the closing, so think of yourselves as the grand finale. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're the show closer. I love it. Yeah. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop and Emily Botin, James Ramsey, Rachel Aronoff, Benjamin Franklin, and Andrew Dunn. Special thanks to Caitlin Pierce for her help with this episode. The Reverend John Delore and who? And Steve Lewis. Wait, The Reverend again. John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Anna's on Twitter at Anna. Or Anna. Bye. Are any of you on Twitter? <laughs> no. 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 Oh. No. We should be. Mary, you say that with such judgment. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was just in no. surgery two hours ago. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> I'm the doctor, remember? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, okay, Liz. If you like Death, Sex, and Money, subscribe to us on iTunes. That helps other people find us on the iTunes chart. I'm Elizabeth Sale. I'm Ellen Sale. I'm Catherine Lucy. I'm Mary Sale, the baby. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Can you edit in the little I'm Anna's oldest sister?